Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And tonight we are picking up with step number seven on joy-making sorrow or compunction, as it's often called, or panthos, sometimes the, the term is used. And uh, John, as we've talked about in the past, has, goes deeper than any of the other Desert Fathers, I would say, in uh, discussing uh, both this sorrow of contrition, of compunction for one's sins that leads us uh, back to God and draws us into a kind of, as we heard the last time, a divine sucker, you know, that there's uh, a sweetness and comfort that God offers that is uh, of the kingdom. And uh, I think where we left off last time, it gave us a kind of insight into why the, the fathers would labor so greatly uh, in this regard, both in terms of uh, mourning their sin, uh, but also in the shedding of tears and the other penitential practices surrounding it. And then as we he begins to speak to us about the fruit of it. We begin to see that there is a, a joy that is not of this world and uh, a joy hard, hard to express. And really, I think the only way that God, uh, John could reveal it to us is to take us along the path that he did and to uh, allow us to experience some of the discomfort, I think, uh, of reading what these monks went through and the intensity uh, of that sorrow in order that we might then understand the fruit of it, which is this divine joy uh, and uh, divine peace within Christ. And, uh, and so he's unparalleled in this regard in, in comparison to the other fathers. So we're picking up tonight with paragraph 59. As soon as a baby begins to recognize its father, it is all filled with joy. But if the father goes away for a time on business and then comes home again, the child becomes full of joy and sorrow, joy at seeing the beloved and sorrow at being deprived for so long of that fair beauty. And a mother sometimes hides herself from her child. And when she sees with what sorrow it seeks her, she is delighted. For thus she teaches it to be attached to her forever and fans the flame of its love for her. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear, saith the Lord. So what John is saying here is that God will often allow us to experience him as absent, uh, although ever present to us, in order that our attachment to him and his love might grow. And this is very important on multiple levels, not only in the deepening of our love for God, but also in our deepening of our love for virtue and overcoming vice. The more that we become attached to God, the, the more detached we become from the things that lead us away from him. And so it's not just our struggle by will to overcome vices that leads us to a kind of freedom. It's what's most important is our desire for the Lord and our love for him. The deeper that grows within us, the less our attachment to the things that are contrary to that love becomes. And this is an important thing, I think, to see and understand in the spiritual life, because often we can become very frustrated and feel that God has abandoned us. And, uh, and when we become overly focused upon the vice that we struggle with, and it becomes too much of our identity or too much the focus of our spiritual life. In a counterintuitive way, we have to allow ourselves to focus upon the mercy of God, to focus on prayer, to keep our attention fixed upon him uh, in order that this greater attachment uh, to his love then gradually lessens our attachment to the things that are contrary to it. And so John uses these very, very human uh, images, certainly, you know, of a, a child's love for his or her parents. 
And, you know, when a father's been absent, the joy when he returns, but also a joy that's mixed with a kind of sorrow, you know, an awareness of having missed the father so much. Or when a mother would play hide and seek, you know, that uh, a mother can take great joy, you know, in the child's search for her. And uh, that there's a kind of natural attachment that is developing uh, at that point. And John is saying there's something similar in our relationship with God. And uh, in fact, where we left off the last time, it was uh, our moving from the sorrow over our sin as a child whimpering in, into the embrace of God to experience this divine soccer, this divine sweetness and comfort that the Lord offers. And so the images that he uses here are very apt, I think, uh, to capture for us how God approaches us and sees us with such tenderness and love, the same tenderness and love that we see in parents. And often for one reason or another, or because of our experiences in life, uh, sometimes the traumas that we've experienced, often we can see God uh, not as the compassionate father or compassionate mother figure in terms of embrace, consolation, uh, but rather as a harsh judge and unapproachable. And so it's never, it's not surprising to me, but I think it often is surprising to many uh, who first come to read uh, the Desert Fathers that there is this language again of desire, of this gentle love, of this fatherly or motherly love uh, expressed in their writings, that God has this desire for us and for our love. And it is our own desire, our own sense of our incompleteness outside of that relationship that brings us to fulfillment and brings us to freedom. We're, uh, I see a couple of new folks have joined us tonight, uh, Charbel and Justin, welcome. And uh, we're, again, we're on page 119 at the very top of the page with paragraph 60. A condemned man who has heard the death sentence will not worry about how theaters are ma managed. So too, he who is lamenting will never return to luxury or glory or anger or irritability. Mourning is the conditioned sorrow of a repentant soul who adds sorrow to sorrow as a woman suffers when she bears a child. So very interesting idea here, a conditioned sorrow of the repentant, that it is a sorrow that is directed toward God and toward the breakdown of the experience of that intimacy and love because of our sin and a longing for that love once again and to experience the fullness of that mercy and with it are specific fruits, John mentions here in this paragraph, that a person who truly is mourning, adds this kind of sorrow to sorrow on a daily basis, begins to experience a freedom from being overly concerned or attached to the things of this world, how a theater is run or managed. He begins to uh, lose any desire for glory or to be affected by anger or irritability in the same way as he has been in the, in the past, that if our focus is upon our relationship with God and being healed of the affliction that diminishes that intimacy, then we are not going to be concerned over the smaller things of this life. And in some ways, not even be overly concerned about you know, our basic bodily needs. And we're not going to be uh, become angry at, you know, people treating us with dishonor, nor are we going to be overly moved by the honor or glory that people seek to, to give us. And so on an emotional and spiritual level, uh, a deep kind of freedom begins to emerge when a person lives in this state. And so it's not an emotional uh, kind of despondency, despair, shame, so much as it is an acknowledgement of the, the loss of that experience of love in its depths and the desire to have it fully once again.
Number 61. Righteous and holy is the Lord, who by his word pricks with compunction the man who dwells in stillness intelligently, and he daily gladdens the man who is obedient intelligently. But he who does not rightly practice one of these two ways is deprived of mourning. So it's a curious little thing the, in the English using this word uh, intelligently or to be intelligent. Uh, again, uh, if we go back to the struggle to find a definition for the word noose, uh, which we've talked about before, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, and to the, the kind of knowing or comprehending contemplating divine realities, divine truths that takes place through the noose when it's purified of the passions. And so John is speaking here, one who practices stillness uh, intelligently with the eye of the heart or the eye of the soul fixed upon God, or the one who is obedient in a similar fashion is then going to experience mourning and the fruit of mourning in the way that John has described. Uh, and I think John's reason for emphasizing this is that, um, you know, often we limit ourselves by our own judgment or our own understanding of what the fathers are speaking of here. And this could be particularly true of mourning and the kind of tears that, that emerge. They can emerge for all kinds of different reasons. You know, it could simply be shame, or it can be that a person uh, is emotional on a certain level, and it might not be rooted in love or this uh, kind of humility or obedience, the desire to do the will of God. Uh, it can be rooted in something that has much more to do with our self-esteem than it does with God. And so to be still intelligently, you know, to foster a kind of stillness that gives birth to tr true and deep prayer and unceasing prayer, and to be obedient intelligently, to have the, uh, through purifying the heart, to be discerning about what is the will of God in our life. And from moment to moment, and that we are seeking to live in, in that uh, obedience uh, as fully as we can. And, you know, going back to some of the things that we've talked about in the past, that we can be willful even in our spiritual lives and about spiritual things and spiritual practices, that we can follow our own uh, desires, you know, what appeals to our sensibilities in regards to our spiritual practices, rather than seeking out guidance from one who has experience or really embracing the practices or the, the manner of life that is needed to help us overcome the passions or to purify the heart. Any comments or questions so far on these first few paragraphs? Okay. Number 62, drive away the hellhound that comes at the time of your deepest mourning and suggests that God is not merciful or compassionate. For if you watch it, you will find that before the sin, he calls God loving, compassionate, and forgiving. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, sayings from this particular step, uh, because it often plays itself out so frequently in the spiritual battle and something that we have to be watchful, of, uh, especially in our struggle uh, with our sin, that the evil one will often uh, speak to us about the mercy of God and make light of the things that we are contemplating in one way or another doing or embracing. And so convincing us, you know, that God will look upon this, you're only human that God will look upon this uh, with gentleness and mercy. Don't, you know, don't become overly anxious about it uh, enough to make us drop our guard and lose our vigilance and, uh, and cease to engage in the spiritual battle. But after 
one falls, then the same demon becomes uh, our prosecutor and speaks to us of God not being loving and compassionate, but rather being harsh. How could you is the voice uh, that we hear, tempting us to fall into a kind of despondency, despair, or to put off turning back to God, uh, to uh, cool our repentance, or to make us draw back into ourselves rather than to seek the healing that comes through the sacrament in particular. So very insidious uh, and, uh, and very subtle, I think, in, until one begins to see the movements in, within one's heart with a greater kind of clarity. And so I think, you know, frequent confession, uh, this kind of daily examination of our hearts to see the things that we were driven by, the things that the kinds of passions that perhaps had a greater hold on us on any given day and to reflect upon why, why that was so, and what was the depth of our prayer on those days. Okay. Number 63, practice gives birth to perseverance, and perseverance culminates in understanding, and that which is accomplished with understanding is not easily eradicated. So perseverance, as we hear in the scriptures, you know, make sure your perseverance, your endurance carries you all the way to the end. And so if we persevere in the spiritual battle, even if we find ourselves falling every single day, that what this culminates in is understanding, uh, a discernment that we learn through uh, even our sins and our falls. And God illuminates the heart in such a way that we are able to become uh, more, uh, I think, aware of the subtle movements of the heart and avoid the, the particular temptations that come to us and begin to foster the things that lead to uh, greater attachment to the things of God. And, uh, and so even though this seems like common sense, um, it's not an easy thing to cultivate that I think when we struggle with a particular passion over a long period of time, perseverance is often one of those things that falls by the wayside. We want to give up or feel that we just should or that we've tried everything. And, uh, you know, sometimes it can be that, yes, we have tried everything, but by, more by our own strength or uh, by our own will than by humility and relying upon the grace of God or the strength that comes through the sacraments. Or, you know, at times God will allow us to experience that poverty to show us the ways that either we are attached not, not only to the sin, but the things that lead to it or the ways that we are negligent or lack vigilance. And so not to punish us, but to help us to see with a greater clarity what, how it is that we need to respond to the grace that he is offering us. Anthony. Anthony writes, this is interesting since I can't be the only one who wants to understand before practicing, who wants to know before and judge whether something is worth perseverance. That's right. That's an excellent way of putting it, too. You know, I think our tendency in the spiritual life is to have this kind of clarity, to, as it were, be spiritual elders, or to be able to leap up the ladder, you know, four steps at a time, and, uh, and to be able to anticipate tempta temptations before they come, you know, to have a kind of clairvoyance, and without engaging in the labor, and without uh, humbling ourselves before God. You know, if it's only by his grace that, uh, you know, certainly our, our ascetic practice plays a, a big role in this, but if it's really only by his grace that we come to this purity of heart, uh, that the noose is purified, and, yeah, it's then only through his grace that we develop this discernment. And so we have to wait upon God and trust in his providence that he gives us the light that is needed for that moment. 
And he might allow us to remain in that struggle uh, because to illuminate that path prematurely for us might lead to pride and then lead at a later time to a greater fall. Uh, a soul that has been humbled and maybe even to the point uh, one would say humiliated by one's own poverty lets go of the illusion that the spiritual life is something that comes about purely by the strength of will. And sometimes we are allowed to be broken down to a kind of raw endurance, you know, where life weighs so heavy upon us, or we experience illness or failure, that we let go then of the illusion uh, of our own greatness or our own capacity uh, to succeed in this spiritual life as one would succeed uh, by just putting our nose to the, the grindstone, or is that the right phrase, uh, in, in the way that we uh, approach our work or our studies, uh, that the spiritual life is the same way or the ascetic life is the same way. And again, there's that kind of danger of just making the ascetic life about uh, muscling our way through certain things, you know, fasting, engaging in vigils, you know, the hours during the day, uh, that by our own strength, we are raising ourselves up and creating an identity, a religious identity for ourselves. But there can be every bit as much of an illusion or delusion in that as in anything else, and maybe even deeper than uh, some of the other delusions that we fall into as, as human beings. You know, to, to see ourselves as spiritual and uh, having gained that by you know, obtaining a certain perspective on reality or the world, rather than having it being given to us by the grace of God. And um, I won't repeat the, the whole notion, but we've talked here about the, the uh, that people don't like to be saved, you know, even, you know, in, uh, you know, these dire circumstances when a person is drowning in the surf. Remember, we've talked about this a number of times, that they can become resentful and angry at the person who saves them, who drags them out of the water, because it's a humiliating thing to lose control, maybe even have to be knocked out and dragged to the shore by your hair and then have the water pumped out of your lungs. Uh, you know, that it's, that's not going to give you this sense of, you know, I'm strong or I've earned, you know, uh, where I am in the spiritual life. And more often than not, that God does not reveal to us where we are uh, spiritually, that our progress is not made known to us because there can be greater danger in that as well. Okay. Any follow-up, Anthony, or anybody else? Okay. Number, um, yes, go ahead. Uh, yes, Father David, I'm, I'm just thinking, going back to number 62 and the hound of hell, mm -hmm. um, and the, the idea, um, you know, the reality of um, daily, mass being with the penitential rite, um, you know, covering those small sins that, you know, those small temptations that I, I, I imagine that John is speaking of here. And you mentioned uh, frequent confession um, as, as being, and, and I'm just looking at that tension between, you know, daily mass and the need for frequent confession. If you could just speak to that for a moment. Right. Well, you know, certainly I think our, in our reception of the Holy Eucharist, that we see this as an act of consummation. You know, the church has described it as the source and the summit of our spiritual life, that we enter into this radical intimacy with the heavenly bridegroom. He gives himself body, blood, soul, and divinity to his bride, the church. And so it is the most intimate of moments for us. And 
entering into that, we don't want to take it lightly. We want to be free as, as possible uh, on every level, spiritually and emotionally, uh, to receive the Lord in the manner in which he gives us, himself to us. And so we seek to remove any impediment to our uh, awareness of the gift that we are receiving, but also that that gift might bear the, the greatest fruit within us spiritually. And, uh, and so whether one has fallen into grave sin or is struggling with uh, a, a consistent uh, venial sin, uh, that you know this the sacrament can be healing for us and prepare us to enter into this moment of greatest intimacy. And uh, you know, I think we certainly we want to avoid a kind of scrupulosity there, and priests have to be discerning in that regard uh, that uh, a person isn't agonizing, you know, simply with a sense of shame or a lack of trust in the mercy of God. Uh, but there is a value, you know, both receiving the Eucharist and going to confession are healing sacraments for us. And, uh, and I think the freer we can be in entering into uh, our reception of the Holy Eucharist, again, the greater fruit that it can bear within our lives. And um, I think sometimes people hold back because the language in the last, you know, half century, I would say, uh, has, you know, we have this tendency towards legalism or over-intellectualizing things and the distinction between mortal and venial. Uh, people often get hung up with, within that and it, it affect, can affect the way that they receive the sacraments. Either they go to one extreme to another. And uh, I think in that we lose the benefit of both being able to receive the Holy Eucharist frequently, but also to receive the healing uh, in particular that comes to us through the sacrament of confession. And so, you know, Philip Neri, uh, for example, when this time of the Counter-Reformation in Rome, you know, Rome had grown corrupt, uh, people had moved away from the faith. Uh, what he begins with is making himself radically accessible within the confessional. Uh, very much like a John Vianney or a Padre Pio uh, type in the sense of day or night, but sometimes like the others that I've mentioned, 12 hours within the confessional, he would take the latest mass in the day so that he could hear confessions all morning long and, and before he would offer mass at noon. And uh, having a sense that it's really what God gives us in the sacraments that is most powerful. And uh, in terms of bringing about a healing, uh, I think what we have to add to this is that our personal spiritual life uh, is absolutely as necessary as that in order for our love and desire for God to deepen. And the two go hand in hand. And so while we, while we would see the sacraments as being the preeminent way that we experience this intimacy and grace of God, the ways that he's given to us, that fostering this unceasing prayer and remembrance of God throughout the day, the practice of the virtues, uh, that all of these things deepen the love and the tenderness that we have, affection that we have in our hearts for God and then deepen the manner in which we enter into the, the sacraments as well. And, uh, and so we need to move away, you know, I think from a, a mechanical way of approaching the sacraments, uh, an overly legalistic way, and in the same thing with the ascetic life, and that it has to be rooted in this relationship with Christ and understanding of the intimacy that we are with God that we are being drawn into. And uh, our, the way that we speak about the faith today lacks this language of desire, uh, both desire for God and desire for virtue. It has become our discussion of the faith is, is all often in the mind or arguing over specific issues that might have great import 
you know, on many different levels, but that really is not at the heart of our day-to-day moment-to-moment relationship with God and entering into that. And I think when reading the fathers, you know, they not, allow no room for that uh, in the sense that they know that that can be a way for us to rationalize, not really investing ourselves in the relationship at all, of maintaining a religious identity outside of conversion, repentance, and pursuing a life of virtue and prayer. Thank you. And, Thank you so uh, much. And so... You know, I think this is what I was struck by, again, in my initial reading of the Father so many years ago, is praxis, the practical aspects of living out the faith, the exercise of the faith, day-to-day, moment-to-moment. And, you know, as any young man, I, and, and as any person, I found myself struggling, uh, you know, with my own sin, with the passions, appetites, you know, selfishness, pride, all, all these things, and not having any sense of how it is that one might uh, deal with those on a day-to-day basis, you know, and even coming into the church, you know, of being catechized in terms of the essential elements of our belief on a creedal level and our understanding of the sacraments, all of that was present and in, in, in through seminary as well. But in terms of the ascetic and mystical life, nil. Uh, in terms of uh, the uh, formation that was offered. And it was only after seminary and after ordination and being exposed to the fathers on a deeper level that I began to see, you know, this, this is what we are called to. And what comes forward, as we've seen so much within these writings, is the gospel uh, in a very uh, living, active, provocative, powerful fashion, unvarnished, and allows it to come alive for us. And I think in my early years as a priest, you know, being struck by reading these challenging gospels and everybody you know, again, saying, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, or in the Eastern Rite, you know, singing glory, glory to you, uh, you know, after the gospels read that, you know, there's a part of us that should tremble, you know, when we hear it, because if we recognize even the heights that we are called to in, in our loving of God and of other, you know, do not resist one that is evil, um, you know, uh, or uh, the Beatitudes, you know, simply listening to them on a deep level, uh, it turns our vision of life upside down, and we've domesticated it. And I think what reading the Fathers does is it, you know, it pushes us back to where we need to be, uh, to have our focus upon Christ, to engage in the spiritual battle and to take hold of the life and the love that he's offered us. Pulls us out of the notional into the real. And that's, you know, asceticism, when you hear that, okay, ascesis means exercise or the exercise of the faith in this practical fashion, living it out, it makes sense. And when you think that we do that in every other area of our life, especially except the spiritual life, then that's eye-opening. It's like a bucket of cold water. You know, why did I spend all these years in college? you know, to great expense or great expense to my parents uh, and, uh, you know, working so hard and all the years of study in seminary and in athletics, you know, what, why, why did I kill myself to the point of, you know, throwing up on the field and, you know, th- you know, damaging the body and, you know, being willing to sacrifice myself on all these different levels. And yet when it comes to the spiritual life, you know, when something more than an hour is asked, that there is a kind of resistance to that. And I think the the Father's writings open us up to see what it is. You know, the subtle temptations, the subtle deceit, delusion that we fall into in our own minds and our hearts, our our capacity for self-deceit, not only the fact that we are tempted along along those lines. 
Daniel. Um, real quick, if I could just, mm -hmm. I don't have typed up, but what you were just saying there reminded me of, um, I don't know if anyone watches The Chosen on here, but they had their, I, I really like it. And it's the part um, where Christ is in the um, synagogue right after he reads the prophecy of Isaiah and then says that it's fulfilled today in your presence. But what, what is interesting is where they kind of, you know, continue the story a bit, right or wrong. And he says, he's, he's talking to them saying, uh, the Jew, the Jewish people who are listening are so greatly offended by, by how he is saying that he had come to like, like save them, like from their spiritual. And, um, and that how, why is it that people like Naaman were cured of their leprosy and he wasn't even Jewish and yet there were how many Jews with leprosy, you know, how is it that this, this woman was uh was elijah went to with the food but not none of these was she the only widow in the world you know what i mean she wasn't even jewish he says it's because they were desperate and they sought me out in desperation and you need to be desperate too you know like and it's just so interesting that you just said made me think of that yeah but, um, I, I think there was an uh, acknowledgement of once so often in the gospel and various individuals acknowledgement of the poverty of their sin and so even though deeply immersed in it, mired in it, they also they knew the poverty of it. And so when the call to repentance comes and the offering of forgiveness comes, uh, it's experienced in this visceral fashion. But I think where there's spiritual pride, it's experienced in an equally visceral way because uh, one takes offense at it that to, to be compared, as it were, to a Gentile, you know, it was in their minds, Gentile dog. And we've talked about this before, you know, if a Gentile woman gave birth to a child or the child survived during a difficult birth, it was lamented that another Gentile was born into the world. And so there could be this kind of, uh, you know, spiritual pride that was so difficult to, to pierce and penetrate. And if you read the gospel, you know, they want to throw Jesus off the brow of the hill when he says these things to, to them, you know, because he's offending their, their sensibilities. And, uh, and if we believe that the word of God is living and active, then when we hear that the word proclaimed uh, at liturgy, then it, it should pierce our hearts as well. And like recently, we've heard John the Baptist and Christ himself, you know, preaching repent. And, you know, John has to stand before us as real as he stood for the people in Palestine. Uh, you know, if we've let the, his words become flat and as flat as the, the page upon, their, upon which they're written, then they're going to have no impact upon us. But if we believe it's the living and active word of God, then, you know, we're going to hear that word in the depths of our religiosity. And when we receive Holy Communion, it's going to take root on an even deeper level. You know, if there's spiritual pride within us, it will never take root. You know, in the story of the soils, you know, it's a sort of jarring thing that three quarters of the time, the, the seed bears, you know, never doesn't take root, you know, stolen away by birds or it's on rocky ground or choked out by weeds. Charbel and Justin, great name, by the way. Thank your parents for naming you Charbel. <laughs> <laughs> My parents didn't name me Charbel. Okay, okay. Is that a religious <laughs> name or did you? <laughs> I took it as, uh, I took St. Charbel as my name saint. Great. Uh, your fault, actually. You introduced him to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, um, so returning to the idea, uh, the, the concept of frequent confession, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but there's, there are a number of, of, of sacramental, sacramental rites that can permit those, those, those venial sins, but getting away from the, the smaller sins, you know, the holy water, as she mentioned, the uh, I don't, I don't know what to call it. Maybe a small absolution in, in, in the Novus Ordo or the Confidier in the uh, 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 Old Rite. 
but there's a peculiar grace in sacramental confession that goes beyond just the remission of sins, right? There's this, um, this strengthening uh, of the spirit against the, the sins that we've confessed. Um, and, and so, especially in, in, in terms of the ascetic life, there's, there's then this, this uniqueness, this irreplaceable uniqueness to, to, um, the sac to regularly and frequently participating in the sacramental confession that, that makes a world of difference in, in our ascetic struggle. Um, and as someone who was away from the church for 20 years and then came back, um, I've experienced that very, very tangibly. There were things that I uh, simply could not overcome in my life until I, I returned to the church and be began to make regular confessions and, and, and participate in sacraments frequently um, that those, those bonds began to loosen. Um, so that's what came to mind when you mentioned that, and I hope I'm right saying that. That that seems, um, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I think even when we are aware and say if we are struggling with something in particular, or we see the movement of our mind and our heart of being attracted to a particular passion or being drawn back into it, uh, you're right that uh, our participation in the sacrament. Uh, allows us to experience something of the, the strength, the, the virtue, the life of Christ himself, uh, but also to know healing uh, uh, in areas of that struggle that we have no perception of. Uh, you know, when we open ourselves up to the action of God's grace in and through the, the sacraments in particular. Uh, but I like how you prefaced it by saying that there are all these other ways too, which we want to embrace uh, with a kind of constancy. Uh, the praying of the Jesus prayer, you know, we know the name of Christ itself uh, has a kind of sacramental quality to it. The, there's a power in the name uh, uh, of Jesus. Uh, you know, every knee shall bow at his name and that it's a name given to him by the father it's himself. And, uh, and so, you know, calling on him unceasingly is something that gives us strength and grace in that spiritual battle and also helps to overcome the sin. We cry out for that mercy and God hears our plea, but uniquely in and through what Christ himself has given to us, it's part of his will that we would embrace what he's given to us, uh, not you know, it's often said that God is not bound by the sacraments. That God can act in people's lives in ways that in his providence he sees as needed. But uh, in accord with his will, that this is how he would want us to approach him. And that our experience of that love, of that grace and mercy would be as concrete as possible. So to audibly confess one's sins and to hear the words of absolution and to experience the grace of the sacrament itself ever so tangibly. And as one engages in it more and more frequently, that becomes more powerful. This is something that Christ has willed and desired for us. And so it's the path that he's laid out for us. It's not that we choose it because you know, just in our own mind, we think it's better. This is what we've been told to do. And this is what the apostles were given the authority uh, and uh, the charge to do. And, uh, and this is similarly with the, the Eucharist. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. That there's something in uh, the, the consuming that it is, you know, um, where, you know, typically when we eat something, you know, it's sort of, you know, we absorb it into ourselves or, trend, you know, it's, but we are transformed into what we receive at the holy alt altar. We become what we receive and are called to do that, to, to allow that to happen. And so there are these specific ways that God has called us that, uh, we give greater value to 
and trust with a greater measure because he's laid them before us. He's revealed them to us. Uh, that does not mean that there's no value or should we should devalue in any way uh, the other things that we have in our life. You know, unceasing prayer, the study of the scriptures, keeping vigil, fasting, uh, all these ways open the mind and the heart to be able to receive that grace in fuller and fuller measure. And uh, uh, I don't know if this addresses what we said, or if you have a follow-up, you know, please feel free. Okay. Very good. Well, why don't we move on to the next paragraph here? Uh, we stop with uh, perseverance, 63, so 64. However great the life we may lead, we lead may be, we may count it stale and spurious if we have not acquired a contrite heart. For this is essential, truly essential, if I may say so, that those who have again been defiled after baptism should cleanse the pitch from their hands with unceasing fire of the heart and with the oil of God. And uh, if you'll note in the uh, footnote at the bottom of the page, number five, uh, sort of the closeness there of the Greek words there, the pun that's being uh, uh, made here by John, mercy and oil are, are very much uh, tied together. And so this fire of, God, of love for God, uh, cleansing that impurity from the heart, and uh, and the unceasing fire of his grace that comes into the heart through an unceasing prayer and through this morning, but also the oil of God, the mercy of God through which the wounds are healed, that if this is lacking within us, then how is it that we are fully living out the, the life of faith, uh, especially after we fall into grave sin? Um, you know, the, we, we don't believe in magic, and Christianity isn't magic, and the sacraments aren't magic. You know, all of it is entering into the depth of the relationship with God as he's revealed it to us, and as he's revealed himself to us. And, you know, there is this danger that we can turn uh, the, the life of faith and even prayer into this kind of magical formula. Even the Jesus prayer or the rosary, you know, if said enough, then, you know, I'll, uh, and it can very easily become prosperity gospel for us, but also magical in terms of bringing about certain things in our life or healing rather than love of God and giving ourselves over to him and fulfilling his will. And uh, so John is saying to us, you know, that we can't reduce the faith into something that is magical, that there, there has to be a depth of love there that also leads to a depth of mourning when there is a, a loss of that love or a betrayal of that love. And, you know, Peter and Judas weren't different, you know, in the, the, the level or the nature of the betrayal there of the Lord, and Peter denies him three times, and yet there is a, a you know, the depth of the love led to uh, mourning and a turning back to him, and one imagines that for quite a long time he ran, you know, the race with a heavy tread, you know, carrying the burden of his betrayal of the Lord, uh, and then also being entrusted with, you know, the care and the guidance of the other apostles, and uh, and disciples, uh, but there was a mourning there that opened him up to the the healing grace of God, that he might experience the mercy of the cross, and that he might then be able to turn and strengthen his brothers similarly, that he might console as other as he himself has been consoled, and this is again what we're told in the scriptures to do, that we we offer to others what we've received. And we offer that consolation uh, that we, we have received uh, in and through Christ. And so, uh, again, you know, we're drawn into, through the writings of the fathers, 
to this vision of living out the Christian life, uh, not in a passive fashion, but fully invested, mind and heart in every way, and uh, that it is what shapes our identity, and it should become who we are, in the same way that prayer uh, becomes not something that we do, but we become prayer, uh, not, not even just that it becomes our breathing, but we become it, that the Spirit dwells within us, constantly calling out to God and groans beyond words. And, you know, our prayer is united to that which dwells within us. And so, you know, what it is, is a participation in the very life of God and the expression of love that exists within the Holy Trinity. And if we don't see our life in this fashion, then uh, we're, we are going to grow lukewarm or cold uh, in the faith, or it's going to become something that is empty ritual for us, or an, an emotional safeguard, or what we've talked about before, an auxiliary construction, as Freud called it, you know, this psychological construct but not real and essential and essential part of our being. And I think this is what John is saying that, you know, mourning has to be an essential part of our being in our life. If our love for God is an essential part, is our part and is an expression of our very essence. So a Christian life that is absent this mourning for one's sin is a Christian life that is absent love and desire for love. You know, one who loves the other passionately is going to mourn the betrayal of that love and seek to restore it, seek to repair it, and whatever would do anything to repair it. Number 65, I've seen some who had attained to the last degree of mourning, for I saw them literally pouring out their mouths blood of a suffering and wounded heart. And I remembered him who said, I am smitten like grass and withered in my heart. So this is a striking saying. It's saying that the, the, the mourning touches the person on every level, including a physical level. And he said that he's seen those who have this mourning expressed where literally out of their mouths, the blood of suffering, uh, of a suffering and wounded heart flows. And one uh, can think sort of, of Christ himself within the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, that as he begins to take uh, upon himself more and more fully uh, the weight of the, the world's sin. And as he's, you know, asked to, you know, drink that chalice to the drag, dregs, you know, drink it to the uh, fully, that, you know, he experiences the full weight of it and sweats blood itself. On a visceral level, you know, his embrace of the Father's will is felt. And similarly, you know, our love for, you know, we, we don't, again, we don't question this on an emotional level or psychological level in our human relationships, you know, and love for spouse or parent, or, you know, when a parent has a little child who's suffering, you know, that they, they are going to experience on every single level of their being, emotional, spiritual, physical, the pain of that and even desire to take that pain upon themselves if they could. And, uh, and so there is a book out there called The Watchful Mind. And uh, it's written by a, a monk from Mount Athos. And it took place during that time of uh, great reform in the spiritual life that took place around the same time that the Philokalia was compi uh, compiled. And, uh, but it shows uh, one of the monks embracing the practice of the Jesus prayer. 
and uh, how deep and how deeply it formed his mind and heart and shaped it. And it describes exactly what John describes here in this step, that there were occasions where he found himself spitting blood. Now, you know, when I first read, I wouldn't encourage anybody just to read, read this book uh, because there are elements of, of this that could be off-putting and one might think is crazy. But uh, I think in reading all the things that we, we read, we are understanding that, you know, they're talking about a life as a whole that is filled with the desire for God and that where the life has become uh, prayer and one is conformed to Christ in every way and participates in the very sufferings of Christ himself and, uh, and experiences in full measure the weight and the burden of one's own sin. And so in crying out the Jesus prayer constantly, one could experience in a very visceral way uh, something as John describes here. You know, we aren't as jarred by when we hear about saints who have different kinds of mystical experiences. St. Philip Neri, again, come back to him in the catacombs. He had, as a young man, prayed, you know, the first 10 years when he was in Rome in the catacombs of St. Sebastian. And, you know, they weren't tour places as they were now. And there were no electric lights, anything. You know, he'd go down and spend whole nights in prayer there. But he has a mystical experience, sort of it's called Philip's Pentecost, that took place on the eve of the Feast of Pentecost, where you know the, he has a vision of the Holy Spirit entering into his mouth and into his heart. And from that point on, he experiences the palpitation of his heart, especially when he's offering the Mass or when he's hearing confession, to the point that the whole room would shake. And people would hear it and feel it, and it would be consoling to them. And after he died, when they did the autopsy, the, uh, much like uh, Gemma Galgani, they discovered this of her too, that the upper ribs broke outward, that the heart had expanded to such an extent that it, it broke the upper ribs in his chest. And, uh, and so on another level here, we see one... Uh, deeply in love with God, a life given over to God, a great purity of heart, a depth of prayer that is experienced on every level of being. You know, we often, again, we think about faith, we think about the spiritual life uh, in, you know, on an intellectual level, notional level, where it's to involve the whole self. Uh, you know, let's think about, again, fasting and how constantly the fathers tie prayer and fasting together, that, uh, that one is humbling oneself in mind and body, and that, that physical hunger that one experiences in and through fasting becomes an expression or a reflection of one's desire and hunger for he who is the bread of life, he alone who can satisfy the deepest hunger for love that we have. And so we hear Christ in the gospel say, you know, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. A new kind of fasting begins to emerge that's tied directly to this desire and hunger for him and for his love. And so our faith life isn't lived out only in the mind, but it's to involve the whole self. And uh, in the way we worship, that should be expressed as well. It's been interesting coming into the Eastern Rite. Uh, you know, when, I'm, when, when I've made it through divine liturgy, I, I know I've been to divine liturgy. Uh, and I became Eastern Rite during the summer, too. My church has no air conditioning. So, you know, on every level, you know, I was completely soaking wet head to toe. But when you're chanting constantly through an hour, the incense, the congregation chanting back and forth between you, the iconography, uh, that the whole self and all of the senses is involved. And there's something that is that teaches us uh, uh, something very important here about uh, the incarnation in and of itself, that God took on our flesh, 
our humanity in order that our encounter with him, our experience of his love, of his mercy, of his forgiveness, of the nourishment of his love might be concrete, tangible for us, not something of the mind or, or opposite, you know, making ourselves stoics where we feel nothing, uh, you know, that in fact, as human beings and as Christians in particular, we should see and experience things with a greater clarity when we are seeing them in and through the eyes of faith. You know, that whole notion, love is blind, it's, it's nonsense. I mean, you know, we're talking about that, you know, a kind of uh, infatuation that fails to see the fullness of the truth. But true love, divine love, sees the fullness of the truth and good and bad. And, uh, and this is what we are called to, uh, you know, to experience God as he is in himself. And he makes himself manifest to us in such a way that we can begin to experience him and encounter him now and experience that intimacy with him now. Divinization, the fathers call it. You know, the, a transformation that takes place through this grace that is given to us where we begin to participate in the very life of the triune God. And, you know, how we could think about that and not on every, you know, every level of our being and experience, you know, a kind of shudder go through us, you know, both in terms of our dignity and destiny in Christ, but also the, the responsibility of embracing it. What is it? You know, what does it mean for you and me to receive the, the Holy Eucharist or to see ourselves as temples of the Holy Spirit? or of participating in the redemptive work of Christ, of being so deeply united to him that our sufferings are united to his own. And, you know, it's an extraordinary life that we're called to. And the world has grown bored of it. It's not threatened by it. It's grown bored of it because we don't bear witness to it. And we don't live as though, you know, as if we could cough blood you know, because we have mourned so deeply choosing sin over love. I've often thought this and, you know, and preached about it, you know, when Paul was preaching, his words probably had an impact. And he might have been boring as heck. In fact, the, we sort of pick up from the Acts of the Apostles that he probably was. Because if you remember one of the stories is he's preaching and going on for a long time. A man falls out of a window and dies. And Paul, has, Paul brings him back to life. <laughs> but I've always thought about Paul, you know, you know, when he tells, he goes through that litany of all the things that he experienced of being stoned, of being lashed multiple times, shipwrecked you know, that he's probably preaching, looking pretty, uh, you know, uh, raggedy, you know, probably missing teeth, bruised, uh, black eyes, you know, scarred from being, you know, given the lash multiple times. You know, that's much, you know, words coming out of the mouth of a man saying we preached Jesus Christ crucified, you know, are going to have a different kind of impact than coming from, you know, one where it's hard to believe what it is that they're saying from the pulpit, that it doesn't ring true, it doesn't uh, reach into the heart. Ambrose, it didn't quite strike me this way before these meditations we are studying, but St. Paul seems to have been expressing this kind of mourning when he wrote about his inability to do the good he wants to do in his inner self that loves the law of God, but instead does the evil at hand in his flesh, which is at war with himself. Miserable one that I am, who will deliver me from this mortal body or this body of death? Uh, isn't that some of the translations? Don't they say that as well? But also immediately he proceeds to gratitude for victory through grace. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The same also leads him to glory and his weakness. 
Wonderful, yes. You know, we, we pick up in the writings of Paul, you know, this same powerful expression, you know, this mourning over his own poverty, the, uh, you know, the contradictions that rested within his own heart, you know, this powerful love for God, but still feeling the pull towards the things of this world, you know, experiencing the, the weight of the, the, the body, you know, the, its weaknesses, but also the, the appetites that could be corrupted and the desires that could be corrupted uh, when one takes one's focus off of God. So, yes, you know, I think we uh, certainly see it, you know, in, in Paul as well, and in so, in so many of the saints. And I think this is why the church holds them up to us, and why in the Eastern Rite, too, you know, the iconography that we see ourselves surrounded, you know, by the saints, that we aren't, you know, praying in isolation, but part of the body of Christ, along with all the saints and the martyrs. And that we are to be as concretely aware, aware of this as possible and to see ourselves as part of that body and sharing in its life. So I really did think that we would finish this step tonight. Uh, <laughs> I didn't imagine we'd only get through a couple of numbers. So I apologize about that, but I'm not in any rush. Uh, so uh, we'll pick up there next time. And uh, again, uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, the campus ministry is uh, having a lecture here for the students this Sunday evening. Uh, it'll start at 7 p.m. and we'll live stream it. Uh, but it's uh, called a, a joyous resolution. You know, how does it that we as Christian men and women have, a, you know, a unique and distinctive way of thinking about resolving uh, to live our life for Christ and what that might look like. You know, that there's something natural about our, especially at this time of the year, of wanting to make resolution, you know, looking back at the past year, looking forward to the new year. And uh, we do that, but we fail all the time and fail miserably often. You know, so what what is it about a Christian and that is distinctively Christian, that, you know, allows us to enter into this, not in an episodic way, and, but in a way that will be enduring and transformative. So that starts at 7 p.m. Uh, I'll post the link uh, later on this week, and please feel free to join, or to watch it af afterwards, it'll be posted. Okay, thank you all, and have a wonderful night, and why don't we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. Thank you, Father. Great. Thank you, Father. Great to see you. Thank, Thank you so much. Always Thank you, Father.